You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Hey friends, so long-time listeners, you guys know that when I started this podcast, I opened up a spreadsheet and I think I had 70 names of people that I would hope one day would be able to come on the show. And today's guest is one of those people. I think it was 2006, I was sitting at a phenomenal conference addressing what the church can do about the uh, global AIDS crisis. And uh, Rick Warren at Saddleback hosted that conference. Uh, Amazingly, back then, the young junior senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, was there to speak. Bono spoke, Bill Gates spoke, it was crazy. And my guest today, Rich Stearns, uh, spoke. Rich is currently the president emeritus, as an Aussie, I never know how to pronounce that second word, but I think that's right, of World Vision International. When Rich stepped into World Vision in the late 90s, he had a background in Parker Brothers, uh, Nerf and Monopoly, that whole deal, and then in Lennox, China. And then to really get Rich experience of World Vision, he also did a stint early out of his MBA uh, Wharton degree. His early stint was in deodorant. So part of Rich's absolute great story is this journey that God led him on and just how phenomenally quickly he got deep into World Vision. So Rich, 20-year stint as the president of World Vision, I think, in my opinion, uh, Rich, not to make you too uncomfortable, but one of uh, Christian Christianity's modern finest leaders uh, wrote a book called The Hole in the Gospel. It is a book that every church member should read because it is the simplest, most provocative book I've read on why the local church should care about systemic poverty, which uh, a lot of people have written about, but Rich really put it in a way that's accessible. And then uh, Rich's latest book, Lead Like It Matters to God. Rich, you wrote a leadership book against your best instinct. Welcome to the show. Tell us why you wrote a leadership book. Well, thanks, Steve. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer as an author that you should only write about things you know something about, you know, and I think sometimes people write books about things that they have no business writing about, but they have the uh, the hubris to think that they can, they can do it. And so my first three books that I wrote uh, were really about poverty and justice issues. And um, uh, and I felt like I knew something about that because when I wrote the first book, I'd, I'd had 10 years at World Vision and probably a million and a half air miles under my belt traveling the world and trying to understand uh, poverty and trying to work with communities to overcome poverty and injustice. And so I felt like I had a story to tell and, and important things to say. And so I retired from World Vision about two years ago after 20 years as their CEO. And uh, it's kind of been in the back of my mind that, you know, another thing I know a thing or two about is leadership. In fact, there's a there's a well-known farmer's insurance commercial now that airs quite often on TV where J.K. Simmons is the star and, and he he's a spokesperson for farmer's insurance. And he says, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. And that pretty much described my career. I know a thing or two about leadership because I've seen a thing or two about leadership. I was CEO, as you said, of two companies prior to coming to World Vision in a secular realm. And then, you know, 20 years at a Christian ministry uh, that was global. So I've seen a lot and I've experienced a lot. And I'm in a, a stage in my career, you know, many of these things I wish I had known when I was 25 or even 35. But the irony of our lives is the the things that you you finally know toward the end of your working life, it's too late 
for them to be very useful to you because uh, you could have used them when you were 25 or 35. And and so I, I just felt like, man, I, I think I could share something with younger leaders that might save them some pain and anxiety and uh, difficulty that might be an encouragement to, to younger leaders. So I had a lot of stories to tell and a lot of thoughts and leadership you know, advice to give. And so that was the genesis of this book. Yeah, it sounds like we both share a, you know, a healthy, not mistrust, but just caution about leadership books. But when IVP sent yours to me, I opened it and and lo and behold, right out of the gate, you have a quote from St. Ignatius. Mm-hmm. And I think that quote, that was the very first quote in your book. It really set the tone for what was a very personal book that you wrote. And also, I, I think an incredible like values driven and and character emphasis. Yeah. Um, you actually get in. It's almost like the Powell principles. You get into the 17 essential character traits of a leader. What What was the decision that made you want to really focus on the heart and character of a leader? Well, you know, the genesis of the book, the thing that really planted this idea in my head was a story I tell right in the introduction about Mother Teresa. And um, the story goes that Senator Mark Hatfield of Oregon was visiting Mother Teresa's work in downtown Calcutta, in the slums of Calcutta. I'm not sure when it was. It might have been in the 1980s. And Senator Hatfield saw this tiny nun with her sisters of charity and literally this little outpost in an ocean of poverty and suffering, an ocean of poverty and suffering, you know, millions and millions of people sick and hurting and poor. And and he was just overwhelmed with the magnitude of the challenge and the size of Mother Teresa's ministry. And he said something like this to her mother, you know, when you look at the the fact that poverty is arguably worse today than when you started 30 or 40 years ago, don't you feel like a failure? Don't you feel like, you know, you failed to address poverty successfully, even in Calcutta, forget about the rest of the world. And Mother Teresa's response to me, I think it was 14 words, and it literally turned our notion of leadership and success inside out. And she said, my dear Senator, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. He did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. So that story, more than anything, resonated with me because most of us in the working world spend our whole career trying to be successful. We desperately want to be successful in whatever our field is, medicine, law, academia, school teacher, uh, hospital administrator, nurse. You know, we want a successful career. But if you read scripture, I don't find anywhere where the Lord tells us he wants success to be our goal, right? He wants us to be faithful, faithful to our values, faithful to our relationship with Christ, but not successful. You know, he, he's not. And I, in that introduction, as you know, I, I imagine the day that I, I will stand before the Lord someday and I will have to give an accounting for my life. I think scripture tells us that. And try as I may, I cannot imagine God being impressed that I increased the market share of Lenox China from 26% to 45% in five years, or that I became the CEO of Parker Brothers Games when I was 33. None of that is going to matter to God. Yeah. You know, what he's going to ask me about is what kind of ambassador were you for me? How did you care for the people around you in your workplaces? People made in my image whom I love, how did you treat them? How did you care for them? You know, those are the things. That, and those are ultimately a leader's character, right? A leader's character. And, and a leader's character is made up of values. You mentioned 17 values, things like integrity and forgiveness and humility 
and courage and perseverance and encouragement. And those are kind of quality character traits, quality traits that comprise what I would call the Christian character of a leader. So that's the long answer to a short question. No, it's a great, it's a great answer, Rich. And, you know, I think part of what makes your story so fun for the rest of us who watched it, <laughs> you, if I recall, Rich, your first so-called mission trip was as the president of World Vision because, you know, you, you were raised like nominally religious, but it was your wife who, before she was your wife, kind of strong-armed you into <laughs> grappling with Jesus. Like you're actually on a blind date with this lady and she pulls out the full spiritual laws. It's a great story. You yeah. write about it in your book. So you're a late believer, you know, you're doing your MBA at Wharton when, when you come to faith and you had this incredible career. So then you step into World Vision. Am I right that your very first technical global poverty trip was as president of World Vision? Yeah, I had never been to Africa. I had never been anywhere to really see extreme poverty. And 60 days after I left the boardroom at Lenox, they put me on a plane to Rakai, Uganda and dropped me into ground zero of the AIDS pandemic. And I was just overwhelmed. I mean, uh, I know you talk a lot about anxiety. Talk about anxiety. Yeah, I was literally in a job that I had no credentials uh, to support me in that job. I knew nothing about global poverty, knew nothing about Africa. I'm not theologically trained, so I, I didn't have a theology degree or an MDiv. I'd never done any fundraising, you know, and World Vision had to raise $3 million a day, 365 days a year to support the, the work. And here I am. And the only thing I knew is that I just felt deeply that for whatever reason, God had called me into this job because there was no other way to explain it. And it was like, Lord, help me. <laughs> I, I don't know what to do, where to start. And unless you've made a huge mistake, you're going to have to show up for me and help me through this. And so that's kind of how it began with, with quivering knees. <laughs> yeah. So can we just pause there in Uganda? Your first ever experience was Uganda. I've not been to Uganda, but I've been to Kenya several times in several parts of Kenya, like even right up to the Uganda border. It's very similar. You're talking about some of the most grinding poverty you can see anywhere in the world. You're talking about on the same level as a Haiti or an India. So you're there 60 days in. What kinds of things are going through your head as you are leading an organization while at the same time having to, just on a personal level, grapple with grinding poverty? What, what kinds of things were you saying to yourself? Well, you know, the, the other uncharitable thing that World Vision did when they sent me there is they sent a camera crew with me to capture every <laughs> tear, every emotion, every oh, man. facial expression as I encountered, really for the first time in my life, human brokenness on a scale that I, I couldn't imagine. And, you know, Rakai, Uganda, it was at the height of the AIDS pandemic. And uh, Rakai is a district of Uganda, I don't know what the population is, but my first stop was to meet these three orphaned boys. They'd lost both of their parents to AIDS and they were living alone in a mud hut with no other family, no adults in their lives. And the oldest boy was 12 or 13. And he, he was now the man of the household raising his younger brothers, literally with the gravestones of their parents right in front of their mud hut where their parents had been buried. And I, I, I just was just devastated to meet these three boys. And then I was told there were 60,000 more just like them in Rakai, 60,000 more orphans. And then 
that there were 13 million of them across Africa because of AIDS. And so I was just broken. I mean, weeping and crying and going back to my hotel and weeping. And, you know, the founder, I, I get emotional even now talking about it, but the founder of World Vision had this famous prayer from the 1950s. He said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And man, was my heart broken on that trip. And I think what World Vision staff understood is we got to break this guy's heart because if we don't break his heart, he'll never succeed at this job because you can't you can't do that job at World Vision dispassionately without emotion, without without a broken heart, you know, because you can't get up every morning and face it unless you have a broken heart that we've got to do something to to help these dear kids that the Lord loves and who have been abandoned by most of the rest of the world. And so we, in some cases, are their only hope, you know, for a, a brighter future and a, a fulfilled life. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me because when I was in seminary in the mid '90s, I was studying Bryant Myers and uh, Jay Kuma Christian, both World Vision Urban Development practitioners. You guys were way ahead of the rest of us on systemic poverty, community development, you know, asset-based community development, some of these fundamental kingdom, I believe, kingdom-driven ways that go way beyond charity, way beyond uh, white savior complex. Mm-hmm. And for them to then bring in a gentleman such as yourself, a, a highly uh, gifted CEO of business, how did you earn the trust of that staff in the early days of being the president? The CEO. Well, you know, that was one of my biggest challenges because you can imagine the chatter around the water cooler when the board comes down from their tower and the puff of white smoke goes up and we have a new <laughs> we have a new World Vision president, right? And here's his resume. He spent the last 11 years selling very expensive china and crystal to the wealthy. He's never been to Africa. He knows nothing about poverty. He has no theological degree. And by the way, the 10 years before Lennox, he sold toys and games and Nerf balls uh, to the world. But here he is, the new leader of World Vision. So right off the bat, the staff members at World Vision had thought that the board had lost their minds. You know, the board, you know, how could they possibly hire someone who has no qualifications for for this job? And so I came in, uh, you know, about 10 feet in a deep hole with the staff, you know, trying to give me uh, the benefit of the doubt. I mean, they were very kind and very gracious. And yeah. and for the first year, I, I mean, I would just leaned into them. Teach me, tell me, help me understand, take me, show me, <laughs> you know, uh, how does this work? And what about this? And so my first year was just an intense course in learning about World Vision and the work they did. And learning about poverty and learning all of those and kind of an immersive course. One of the things I quickly realized, so the board hired me ostensibly because I was a good business leader. Yeah. And at the time, World Vision was pulling in about $300 million a year in donations in the U.S. And the, the board, many of the people on the board were business people. And they said, you know, we can't stick a retired pastor in here managing that kind of money. We need somebody that's actually run a large organization and understands financial dynamics. And so their job description really called for finding a, finding a Christian leader with deep business experience. And so though I fit that bill, but I think they underestimated the need for 
a deeper understanding of poverty and its causes and all of that. So, but the other thing that was a surprise, Steve, was that for the staff, being a good business leader was not enough for them. They wanted a spiritual leader. This was a spiritual ministry, deeply spiritual. And the legitimacy of the leader, you have to be able to lead us spiritually, not just with key performance indicators and scorecards and business, you know, paradigms. You have to be able to lead us spiritually. You have to be able to speak about our work from a spiritual framework. And and so that was something I had to really grow into. I had never preached a sermon. Uh, you know, I'd never, I frankly hadn't done a lot of public speaking before that. And so, uh, you know, I said to my wife, I said, they want a pastor, not a business leader. It's not not good enough that I know marketing, you know, and, and, uh, and finance. They want a pastor. And, you know, my wife would say, well, honey, Lord, the Lord called you here. He knows you can do it and he's given you what you need. You just need to trust God, you know, for this. And so gradually over time, you know, I became more comfortable with that kind of pastoral spiritual leadership role. And which was very, very important because just the nature of the work. And even when you're speaking to donors, uh, it's a deeply spiritual thing. You're asking them to make a sacrifice for biblical reasons, you know, that God has called us to love the poor, not just help them, but to love the poor. And this is one of our duties as followers of Christ, uh, to welcome the stranger, to feed the hungry, to give water to the thirsty. And uh, it's our high privilege to be able to do it. But if if I couldn't speak from a scriptural basis to that, uh, it wouldn't have resonated with Christian donors, you know. I guess that answers the question, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing that that job requires that's unique to a CEO of that size organization is the ability for the CEO to comfortably walk down a sewer line, like an open sewer, down to a little tin hut and get on your knees inside someone's home Mm -hmm. and receive their hospitality and see them. Um, I, I had the Another one of my great heroes is Jimmy Miato, the president mm-hmm. of Compassion International. He's sure. a phenomenal human being. I know Jimmy. Yeah. And I had the, yeah, I had the honor of uh, being in a country with him and watching him, uh, uh, him do this very thing. You know, like you have to be able to run a highly complex organization and also that pastoral thing. Th- that's what I picked up from you when when I heard you speak. It was like the you can't you can't hide passion, and so that whatever that was that first trip or those first years, um, I mean, I don't think I heard you till 2006. So you'd been in it a while by then, but passion was pouring out of you when you were speaking <laughs> about the plight of of the lowest, you know, the people with the lowest poverty. There's not really a question there, but I'd love to hear your response to that. Well, it, it, you know, it, I truly believe that in my case, it, it, it was a calling. Um, I had always had a deep concern for the poor. I, you know, from the day I became a Christian, in fact, I tell the story in the whole inner gospel when Renee and I got engaged, she wanted to register for her fine China. You know, we were in our early twenties and, uh, and I was a brand new believer, you know, I'd just become a Christian. And I said, as long as there are children starving in the world, we're not going to own fine China. And it's an, it's an important story because 25 years later, I was the CEO of the biggest China company in America. Yeah. which I could have never predicted back in, you know, my college days when when we were having this discussion, my fiance and I. And so it, it actually was kind of God's sense of humor uh, because 
you know, you were so, in fact, when, when the recruiter called for the World Vision job and, you know, you know the story, I didn't want it. I didn't, I, I wasn't qualified. I wasn't available. I wasn't interested. And yeah, uh, you made a really compelling case to him. <laughs> but I remembered that story and it was almost like God was telling me, Rich, do you remember that idealistic young man, a new convert who said, as long as there are children starving in the world, we're not going to own fine China. Rich, look in the mirror. Look at what you've become. You've become the CEO of the biggest, most prestigious China company in this country. But if if that young man is still inside of you with that passion, there's a job I want you to do. And I want you to come to World Vision. And it was really a kind of a profound moment for me because I, I just knew that God had led me on this path to reveal that very thing to me. You know, that that passion I had as a young man was now coming to fruition. And now was my opportunity to do something about those hungry children around the world. But to do it, I would have to say yes. I would have to obey. And yeah, it was a profound thing in my own life uh, to do that. Uh, and And just, you know, my wife and I, right from the beginning of our marriage, we're, we're passionate about global missions and global poverty. And we had been World Vision donors for 15 years before, you know, that phone call ever came. And World Vision was actually our number one charitable giving uh, recipient because we believe so much in our responsibility for the poor. I never dreamed that I would actually have a job that required that involved that I, I just assumed that I would send, make a lot of money and send it to organizations like World Vision. So I was a bit surprised when, you know, the Lord showed up with that invitation, if you will, to uh, to join World Vision. I think one thing I would love to explore with you, Rich, is the unending nature of World Vision's work. I, I think a lot of faith leaders feel this same pressure, but I think people like you guys in Compassion and World Relief like it really is true. I, I remember the early numbers for World Vision. You guys were taking care of a hundred million children. I don't know what the current number is. Uh, how, how accurate is that number? Well, I think we estimate that it's, it's hard to get hard numbers, but we estimate that well over a hundred million people a year benefit from the ministry of World Vision. That doesn't mean we have a hundred million sponsored children, but mm-hmm. for every child that's sponsored, there are you know at least five other children that receive benefits and. And of course, everyone in those communities, when you drill a well in a community, it doesn't just benefit a sponsored child, it benefits all of the people who live in that community. So, but yeah, we're in a hundred countries with more than 40,000 full-time employees uh, who are experts in their field. And so it's, most people don't realize it, but I mean, World Vision may be the largest Christian organization in the world. Um, That's not a denominational organization, maybe the largest parachurch organization in the world. And if not the largest, it's certainly one of them. Yeah. So let's say it's just for round numbers, 100 million people. And and there's a significant percentage of those 100 million that literally it is life and death, whether whether World Vision is able to help them or not. Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of leaders feel the pressure when your job is unending. I know for me as a local church pastor, it's very difficult for me to come home and say, well, my work is done because it's just there's an unending nature of it. I, I always have great respect for people who are in more of an acute anxiety situation where it's grinding poverty or it's domestic violence. You know, these categories where the unending nature has a high risk involvement. What was it like for you in the early days of being the, the CEO to be able to work at a pace that was sustainable when your job is somewhat unending? You know, that's an, 
important question, and I, I address this in my chapter in the book on balance, because the first two leaders of World Vision were fired by the board of directors. Yeah. The first leader, Dr. Bob Pierce, was the founder. And one of his, I met one of his elderly board members, former board members, when I started at World Vision in 1998. And he had known Bob Pierce in the 1950s and served on the board. And he, he described him as a psychotic for God. Now, I don't know if that's the right uh, psychological term, but he was so driven uh, by this vision of helping the poor and this commitment to helping the poor that he literally sacrificed everything else in his life, his family, his children. One of his daughters committed suicide. His marriage fell apart. He became estranged from his family. He got into substance abuse. Uh, and in 1967, the board of directors fired him. They fired the founder of the organization because he was so erratic his leadership style was so chaotic. He, he was so driven that he was actually destroying the organization he'd created. And uh, under the theory, don't get mad, get even, uh, after he recovered, uh, he had a, a couple of years of you know sorting out his, you might call it a nervous breakdown back then. Uh, he, he started Samaritan's Purse after that. And of course, Samaritan's Purse has grown to be one of the great big humanitarian organizations. So Bob Pierce, I mean, God used him despite all of his flaws and to start two amazing organizations. His lack of balance in life destroyed a lot of other things in his life and other people in his life. And, and then his successor was Stan Mooneyham, who served at World Vision, I want to say for 11 or 12 years. And he ended up getting fired by the board for, again, kind of marching off the map and doing things that you know, were maybe unacceptable, making financial decisions that were unacceptable, taking risks that were unacceptable. So when, when I was hired, the board warned me, they said, be careful. This organization has a way of destroying its leaders. And um, we want you and your family and your marriage and your kids to be happy and healthy and safe. And if you lose your marriage, if you lose, you know, your relationship with your kids, you're probably not going to be working here anymore either. So, you know, mind your family. And even for some of those years when they did my performance review, they would include my wife in the performance review to say, is he home enough? Is he traveling too much? Is he getting enough time with the kids? And, you know, what's, what's his scorecard look like at home? And so I would say the first couple of years, I really struggled with that because there were so many countries I had to visit and so many places that I had to go and learn. And my wife finally laid down an ultimatum. She said, we can't live like this. You know, your children need a father. I know that the children of the world need help, but it's not fair to make your children compete yeah. with children that are dying around the world. And she said, I don't know how you solve this, but you're their dad and you have to solve it. And um, so I started working really hard on, okay, how can I limit my travel? How can I um, send other people to certain meetings and certain destinations? Do I have to be in every place? And, you know, I say in the book that for a workaholic, you know, working for a Christian ministry is like working in a bar for an alcoholic. You know, it's, yes. it's like I, everything I'm doing, I'm doing it for the Lord. So it justifies any bad behavior I have or any, any tendency to overwork or, you know, be a workaholic, it's so easy to justify. I, you know, when I was selling fine China, it was hard to say, honey, if I don't show up at work, you know, and work 12 hours a day, you know, women are going to have fine China crises in their lives <laughs> yeah. and they're, they're not going to have the China they need for Christmas dinner. And it's like, yeah, really, you know, uh, 
But when lives are at stake, you know, it's, it's kind of a different story. So I, I had to find a balance and that took some discipline and it took some tough decision making that, you know, I remember a big global meeting that was occurring in Thailand, I think, very important meeting in the life of World Vision. I was the president of largest office within World Vision and uh, it conflicted with my daughter's high school graduation. And I agonized over it. And I finally just said, I'm not going to the meeting. You know, I'm going to go to my daughter's graduation. And I sent another delegation of several people that went and represented World Vision. And they did great. They were gifted, talented people. They could handle it. They didn't need me. You see, it's arrogance when we say the Lord can't accomplish his work unless I'm there. And pastors fall into this uh, a lot, I think, you know, because I've known pastors that attend every committee meeting of every church committee and they've got their board meetings and they're gone every night and they, they go and visit the youth programs and they go and visit the elderly in the hospital and the sick and, and they can justify it under the banner of, well, Hey, I'm doing it for the Lord, but the Lord also gave you a family and gave you friendships and other relationships that are also important in your life. And you, you've got to find a way to achieve balance. Cause if you don't, if your life is really unbalanced, you're headed for a train wreck in your life. You know, I, I think I say in the book, you're trading short-term gains for long-term tragedies in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned pastas that I think there's something unique about getting up on a regular basis and monologuing for 30 minutes or so and everyone watching mm -hmm. and saying, thus saith the Lord, that makes you believe you're more essential to the kingdom than you really are. And there is, there is something wonderfully liberating about being an interim, regardless of your actual role, just realizing that yeah. the baton was handed to you, you'll pass it on one day and God, God will continue to move. Rich, I would like to, before we get to the gauntlet, um, the infamous gauntlet, if I may, <laughs> uh, I, I would like to just touch base with you on how do you see the church doing well? I, I think... I think we are trying to get out of a general culture of charity and actually move to the biblical values of reciprocity, dignity, solidarity. What do you see that's going well? And what would you like to see the church doing much better at as it relates to global and systemic poverty? Well, I think, first of all, Steve, you know, you and I were talking about this before the podcast started, that the church has to realize that tackling issues of global poverty is incredibly technical. It requires a great deal of experience, uh, cultural awareness in, you know, you're working in another country and a lot of, uh, a lot of skill sets, you know, uh, starting a microfinance loan institution to give loans to the poor. You have to have all the skills of a bank, you know, you have to understand poverty and, and how do you get your loan repayments rates to be acceptable in a microfinance institution when you're working with destitute people who may not have the money to pay back your loan. If you're working nutrition, you need to have nutritionists. If you're if you're working on combating HIV and AIDS or malaria, you need medical experts and public health experts. Um, clean water and sanitation is requires massive technical skills and 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 infrastructure, drilling rigs and hydrogeologists. And so, for any individual church to think we can get on a plane to Africa with a bunch of volunteers and help the poor. I'm sorry to say, but it's kind of a ludicrous idea. You know, I mean, you might be able to help the poor through some biblical teaching, and I, I don't want to minimize that. But if you really want to help the poor, if you really want to help people move from poverty to prosperity in their community, 
you really need to know what you're doing or work with people who do know what they're doing. I, I think the best model is for uh, churches, except maybe with the exception of the very largest churches, but to partner with organizations like World Vision, Compassion, Samaritan's Purse, uh, World Relief, people that have 50, 60, 70 years of experience, maybe working in that country. Yeah. Let's say it's India or Costa Rica or, or or Guatemala, you know, people that really know the culture, really know the issues, the laws, the pitfalls, where, where the landmines are, are hidden, you know, in the culture, and, and people that have the technical expertise and, and find a way to partner with them and use their expertise. As I said to you earlier uh, today, if a church was going to build a new sanctuary, they wouldn't just tell people to show up with some tools on Saturday. They they would hire an architect and there'd be a whole planning phase. And then once the architect uh, plan was approved, they'd hire a general contractor who would then bring in the plumbers and the electricians and the, the, the acoustical experts and the, the people that make pews. And, uh, you know, all of those technical specialties would have to be brought to bear at just the right moment in the construction of the church. And yet, Every church in America would do something like that, but when it comes to helping the poor, they think, well, we'll just get a bunch of volunteers on an airplane, we'll go over for a couple of weeks, and and we'll help, you know? And th- there's a wonderful book, When Helping Hurts, that yeah. was published about the same time as The Whole Inner Gospel, and there's another one called, I think, Toxic Charity. Yeah, Bob Lupton. That says how well-meaning people can actually do more harm than good. You know, the motives are nothing but pure. We just want to help people. We want to make ourselves available. We want to give them things that they don't have. And yet that well-meaning attitude can end catastrophically and can actually really hurt a community uh, if you're not careful. So uh, my advice to the church is, first of all, take global missions and global poverty seriously. It is one of the main things God has called the church to do in the world is to care for the poor. And we are the wealthiest nation of churches in the history of Christendom. So our responsibility is especially uh, acute uh, in this regard. And uh, we just want to use that those resources wisely when we when we bring them to bear with the poor and we want to use them with expertise. So that's kind of my short answer on that question. You know, folks, I, I'm just going to say it every week. So, you know, those of you who had that plus 30 button on your podcast and you're tired of it, now's the time. However, if you've been listening for a while and you haven't done anything about it, then don't skip over this. Maybe this is the day you actually do something. The fact is that if you want a different encounter with God and if you want a different relationship to leadership, pressure, and anxiety, you have to do something different this year than last year. You know, so many people said that 2020 was one of the toughest leadership years they've had. When I was a trauma chaplain, one of the biggest lessons I learned is that the emergency room doesn't create the crisis. It just reveals the crisis that a family was already in. So when someone had come through on a gurney that had a car accident and then a minute later their family shows up, whatever condition their family was in before the car accident, that's the condition that gets exposed by the car accident. I hope that makes sense to you guys. So if you came out of 2020 running on fumes, I'm not blaming you. I'm not saying you're doing something wrong. I'm just saying 2020 did not create your soul condition. 
2020 exposed your soul condition. Rich has written a book, Lead Like It Matters to God. Uh, His primary focus is on leadership under the surface, character, spiritual connection to God. In fact, his wife kind of chided him because once he got into his 17 traits, the first two traits are like sacrifice and things that you don't necessarily want to read about as leaders. Rich, before we get into the gauntlet, let's pull one of them, uh, trust. You talk about out of the 17 characteristics, let's just talk about trust. What do you mean by trust? Why is it so vital in leadership? Well, I think as as believers, if we've surrendered our life to Christ, and my first chapter is surrender, that every leader, every Christian needs to first surrender, not my will, but thy will, Lord, thy will. And I talk about surrendering our ambitions for Christ's ambitions for us. So right there, it's a very liberating and freeing idea that I am wherever I am, wherever I work, I don't care if you mow lawns or you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you're there to serve Christ and you've surrendered your career to Christ. Let the chips fall where they may. Let him do with me as he pleases. I'm here to serve. And I think if you start with that attitude, then the next step is I have to trust him. Now that I've surrendered, if you surrender everything you have to someone, um, marriage is a good example. You have to trust that person, you know, that if you surrender everything you have to your spouse, you, you, that's a trust relationship. And so we need to have that trust relationship with the Lord. And that when things are going badly at work, we still have to have that trust, you know, say, Lord, you know, this is a funny story. Uh, I used to have a company car at Lennox, you know, a nice car. I drove a Jaguar. And what we said, those of us that had company cars, it was a great benefit and the company paid for everything. And, but when the car broke down, it was like, Hey, I'm sorry, but your car broke down. So you need to get your car fixed, Lennox. Yeah. You know, it wasn't my car broke down and oh no, I've got to fix yeah. the car. Well, it's a little bit like that in our career. Like, Lord, if my career is going badly, like, well, you put me here, Lord, and y- y- your servant's career broke down here and uh, I've already surrendered everything over to you. So what what do we do next? Where do we go from here? But it's kind of trusting the Lord that it doesn't all depend on you. And the Lord will show up. If you're faithful, the Lord will show up. And as you know, I've been fired twice, but the Lord was faithful through those periods. I came out the you other fired side. fired twice in 12 months. Yeah. You, you that, got that, two that's, firings in a year. That's hard to do. And uh, that's, that's one, one of my great resume accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so trusting the Lord is, is just really important that, you know, we talked about when I came to World Vision, not knowing anything. It was like, all right, Lord, <laughs> you put me here. All I'm, all I have to do is do the best I can do. I used to tell my kids, all you can do is the best you can do, right? All of us have weaknesses, short suits that we don't have very many face cards in those suits. And we're all flawed. And we just have to trust the Lord that, hey, look, Lord, you know who I am. You made me, you've got to compensate, help, help me compensate for these things. So all we can do is the best we can do. And what I did at World Vision in that moment is I just put one foot in front of the other and say, I'm just going to keep moving, keep doing the best I can do. And I'm going to leave the outcome to you. I mean, if you want World Vision to get all messed up, you either shouldn't have picked me or or you need to help me and guide me through this. And we're in this together. And so if you knew the Lord was in the room with you, you you'd be, and he is, it's much easier to trust him if you saw him sitting in the room with you saying, I got this, I'm here. I know what's happening to you and I'm, uh, and I'm in it. Yeah. Just do the best you can. Be the person I've called you to be. Yeah. And that relieves a lot of anxiety. 
All right, Rich, speaking of anxiety, uh, you know, I can see the fear in your eyes. You have been postponing the gauntlet since we first met, but I think it's time you face it like a man. So first question, you know, anxiety, obviously my field is chronic anxiety, which uh, unrelated to PTSD, uh, obviously in World Vision, you do a lot of work with actual trauma. That chronic anxiety is based on false belief and false need, something we think we need that we don't really need. So for me, like I'm a chronic people pleaser. I always like to know the answer. Um, when chronic anxiety f- first shows up, it's often physiology. So for you, would it first show up in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut? What would you say for you? Probably a spinning mind. You know, I uh, when I'm confronted with something that is anxiety producing, I'm I'm like a rat trying to find a way out of a maze. You know, it's like, what do I do? What what about this? What about this? What about that? I try to logic myself out of it. What are my options? Uh, What are the possible solutions? I try to process it that way. And it helps me make sense of it. And making sense of it lowers my, my anxiety, you know, so that's probably spinning mine. Yeah. Okay. And then often it's common for leaders that there are certain situations we just know they're going to generate anxiety. Like for a pastor, it's somebody emailing and saying, hey, we need to meet, but you have no idea what they want to meet about. (laughs) What would be a situation in your life that you know is pretty guaranteed to get you going a little bit? Well, uh, I think the the hardest thing I've had to do that creates anxiety is when I have to fire somebody from a job. And at a place like World Vision, when you pray with somebody in the morning and share devotions with them and you have to fire them in the afternoon, uh, that could be pretty anxiety producing. And I don't think anybody except a sadist enjoys firing somebody from their job. It's uh, having been fired twice. By, by the way, that was one of the great things about being fired twice is I had a lot more empathy for people that were going through that, in, even if they, even if I was doing the firing but, but I think uh, you just know that you're dealing somebody a devastating blow that is going to be very, very painful for them emotionally and uh, even professionally. And sometimes it has to be done. And, um, you know, I sometimes use the metaphor, and I share this in the book, that sometimes a plant needs to be repotted, right? You know, the plant was flourishing, and then it no longer was flourishing. And maybe it's root bound, and it just needs some new soil in a different place or a bigger pot. And, uh uh, so I like to think that when you are forced to terminate somebody because they're no longer able to do this job uh, because of some situation or change circumstance, hopefully you're sending them to a place where they will flourish, but they had to get through this tough thing first. And then there's something on the other side of that difficulty, but it's never easy to face somebody and say, I'm, I'm very sorry to tell you that I have to terminate your employment today. Yeah. You write very movingly in this book about your upbringing and uh, your alcoholic dad and single mom um, and just some of the brokenness that happened. Part of family systems theory is the simple idea that we bring our family of origin into the workplace, whether we want to or not. What would be one trait that would be a real asset that's been handed down to you? And then what might be a trait that's been a liability in your leadership? Well, the asset would be a funny way to call it an asset, but my family was so dysfunctional. Alcoholism, my father had three marriages, three divorces, two bankruptcies, evicted from our home. My father never finished the eighth grade. My mother never finished high school. So I set out as a goal in life to be everything my family was not. 
So no education. My parents had no education. I have two Ivy League degrees. My father had three divorces. I've been married 46 years to one woman happily. <laughs> uh, we had a chaotic, crazy family. You know, we had five children and a dog named Snickers and a minivan. And uh, I tried to build the best family life I could, you know, in that. My father was a business failure. You know, I've been a CEO in multiple companies. So ironically, it was the dysfunction of my family that drove me to not become my father, you know, and I know a lot of men feel just the opposite. They feel pressure to become their father, you know, or their father's going to be disappointed with them if this or that. And a, a, a woman could feel the same way about a father or a mother. But um, so it actually, in kind of a perverse way, uh, it motivated me to do the things uh, I did in my career and my educational life and my family life. I think on the negative side, I, I, I never got away from that sense of financial insecurity mm. that our family, you know, when the bank forecloses on your house, when you're 10 years old and you're evicted, and then you spend the next few years moving from apartment to apartment, you feel very insecure, you know, uh, very insecure about money. And my wife will tell you that even when I was the CEO of Lennox driving a Jaguar and, making a lot of money, I wouldn't let my kids order a soda when we went to McDonald's for lunch because a soda was $1.50 times seven of us, you know, five kids and two of us. You know, I used to say you could sponsor a child at World Vision for, for that amount of money, you know, was, you know and, and, and you can drink water, you know, <laughs> or we would go to the movie theater and we'd get one big drink, you know, the 48 ounce drink, and we'd ask for six courtesy cups and we would sit there in the pouring the Coca-Cola into these six tiny little cups they gave us for free. But anyways, financial anxiety was... So leaving my corporate career and taking a big pay cut to come to World Vision was was really anxiety-producing for me because I, I had to trust. I had to trust, Rich, you know, I'll take care of you. Just obey. Be obedient. Don't worry about the money. I got this. That's really great. I think a lot of leaders deal with an inner critic. You know, all leaders face criticism, but sometimes it's the, the voice inside our head that can be the hardest to mm -hmm. shake. What would be a common message that your inner critic would send to you? You know, I think like a lot of people throughout my career, there have been moments when I felt way over my head. And I, I've already described how I felt at World Vision, way over my head, out of my depth. Being the CEO of Parker Brothers at 33, it's like, whoa, how did that happen? You know, way out of my depth. Don't have the experience for this. And just uh, the way I've dealt with it is, as I described, that, uh, Lord, I'm out of my depth. Uh, I need help. I'm, you know, and that kind of comforting message, you know, like I'm with you. I know what's happening in your life. Just do the best you can. You know, do the best you can. I've given you certain skills and gifts. Use them. <laughs> And uh, and then let the chips fall where they may. So, you know, I think that would my inner voice more than once has said, I'm not up to this challenge. Mm. The final question is, you know, John writes in First John that perfect love casts out fear or, or displaces anxiety. It's, it's hard to be in the grip of anxiety and, the, and in the grip of being loved at the same time. So when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Well, I'd have to say when I'm doing a podcast with someone like Steve Cussy, <laughs> Steve Cuss. Um, <laughs> actually, um, you know, I have six grandsons now. And when I'm with my grandsons, I think I feel, I feel fully loved because they just love me because I'm grandpa, you know, 
they don't they don't know who I was in my career or what I did, or they have some, you know, they're the oldest one is 10, you know, and the youngest one is one. So um, they just know I'm grandpa and that I love them and, and uh, they look forward to seeing me and my wife. And uh, so, you know, my grandson's family in general, you know, just being with my adult kids and their spouses now and um, enjoying, enjoying that part of my life. Folks, the book is Lead Like It Matters to God. Um, if you're like Rich and you're a little bit suspicious of leadership books, this is the one to read this year because it's all leadership under the surface. It's all about God forging your character so you can increase your capacity. It's not about efficiency and success. It's just about being an exactly human-sized leader. Uh, this episode, as all, has been sponsored and brought to you by Capable Life, www.capablelife.me. For those of you who want tools for emotional and spiritual integration, Rich Stearns, uh, I get to check a, a check a item off my bucket list. Thank you so much for your time. It's been just a genuine honor. I I had high hopes for this uh, episode, and it's it's exceeded expectations. So thank you so much for coming on. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.